Thanks, Ben. That was, that was great. I told Peter that he should add uh, some motions to that song. I thought that chorus, you know, the band could do some really cool shake-it-off motions, but uh, I guess that's not how we do it here at Hiawatha. So if you agree with me, you can tell him, and maybe we'll uh, win them over. Maybe not. Anyway, good morning. Uh, welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you are a visitor this morning, I've, I've actually talked to, to many of you already. Welcome to, to, to our church. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. Um, we are a church that is uh, full of people who are visitors, who are new to Hiawatha, who are maybe new to their faith, uh, or maybe they, they don't know quite what they think about Jesus yet. They don't know who he is, or maybe they don't know what, what the Bible is about, and they're just checking it out. They have, they have questions, and that's great. And we love being a church where people can feel safe to come and ask questions, to come and uh, listen and uh, figure out and, and learn and hear who Jesus is and who he said he was. And so praise God. He's growing our church. We have uh, many visitors, many visitors every single week, as well as people who are new to the faith or just new to the church. And so chances are you're sitting or you're surrounded by many people who are new to our church. So I'd encourage you, especially if uh, you call Hiawatha your home, and even if you are newer, to uh, greet some new people, find someone you maybe haven't uh, met yet before service or after service or during our, our little uh, greet time at the beginning of the service. And uh, welcome, welcome people in. We, we serve and, and worship a God who welcomed us to himself. And so we want to reflect that and how we welcome people to our church, how we are hospitable. So if you are a visitor, uh, welcome again. And uh, we're in a study in the book of Matthew. Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples and he uh, was an eyewitness to Jesus' life and his teachings, his miracles, his death and resurrection and ascension back to heaven. So we've been studying the book of Matthew for about a year now, and uh, we'll have about another year left. And so today's passage, we're going to see Jesus is, is uh, going to be talking to us about what it will cost us, what it will cost uh, people to follow him. And we're going to be looking at that. So we're going to start in, uh, our passage today is in uh, chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 21 and go through 28. Uh, the passage will be up here on the screen. It's also in your worship folders or you can find it in the Bible, in your pews as well. Starting in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us through Scripture, and just like you did in this passage, how you reveal 
who you are, your character, why you came here, your great love for us. So we pray as we study your scripture this morning, as we look at you as Messiah, as the, as the coming king who will rescue his people, pray your spirit would, would teach us this morning, would convict us of sin, would encourage us in who we are in Christ because of uh, what you did on the cross on our behalf. Be with us this morning. Speak to us. Pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, before we start and get into our passage, uh, some of you might be asking the question, so, so what's, what's going on here? Even just a, a brief, quick reading of this, you might be thinking, what's up with all this like suffering imagery? What's up with uh, Jesus talking about death and suffering and judgment? I thought, I thought I remember reading that, that God was a loving God, or even just a few chapters before we saw how Jesus calls God a loving Father. So why here is Jesus speaking so harshly? Why is there so much death and judgment imagery? And so in order to understand where we are in our story, so where we are in our passage today in Matthew 16, we're going to do just a very, very brief history of what's going on here in the Bible. So at the very beginning, God created the universe, and he created everything in it, including humanity. And when he created, he said it was good. And he created man and woman, and he said that they were very good. And they lived in perfect harmony, perfect relationship with their creator God, with their father, in paradise with him. But that didn't last very long. Uh, Satan came and tempted our first parents, Adam and Eve, tempted them to no longer trust God, but instead to make themselves their own gods, to no longer look to God for truth, but to want to find it on their own, to make themselves their own God. And so when uh, our, our parents, first parents, Adam and Eve, took that fruit and disobeyed God and turned their back on him and rebelled, sin entered the world. And it was no longer paradise, and we no longer had perfect relationship and union with our God and with our Father. And this earth, this uh, universe, our lives became marred with sin. Death entered the world. Sin entered the world. Pain and suffering and thorns entered the world. And even though uh, we had just rebelled against God, even though we turned our back on him and said, we don't need you anymore, we'll become our own gods, essentially, even in this, this time, God was very merciful and gracious with uh, with our first parents, and he promised them that despite our rebellion, he was going to fix it. He promised early on, even right away after that, that he would send someone to rescue his people. He would send someone to defeat his people's enemies, to defeat death, to defeat sin, to defeat pain and suffering and our banishment from God and bring us back into relationship with him. And so all throughout the Old Testament, from, from the time that Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden, were separated from God, and when sin entered the world, all the way until Jesus, the people of God have been waiting. They've been waiting for this rescuer to come, waiting for this Messiah, this king, that would come and defeat God's people's enemies and bring them back into relationship with God. So that's where we are here in this passage. So for thousands of years, God's people have been waiting, waiting for this rescuer to come, waiting for this king to come. And we're going to see how many of them had, had wrong beliefs about what this Messiah, what this, what this king, what this rescuer was about. So today's passage begins with this phrase, from that time. 
So you might be asking, what time? So we have to go back and look at uh, yesterday's passage, or sorry, last week's passage, which sets the stage for this week. So last week, Chris preached on uh, Matthew 16, a little bit earlier on. And so what's going on here is that uh, Jesus has been doing many miracles. He's been healing people. He's been teaching. He's been casting demons out of people. He's even raised people from the dead. And Jesus asks his disciples, who, who do the crowds, who do the people say that I am? And they respond by saying, well, they think that you're a prophet. They think that you're John the Baptist or maybe one of the prophets from the Old Testament come back. And he turns to his disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? You have been following me for a year. Who do you say that I am? So let's read from last week's passage. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, which is another word for Messiah. Or those words are synonymous. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So when we see this, this phrase, from this time on, we're talking about from this time when the disciples finally realized who Jesus was, when they knew that he was the Messiah. From this time on, Jesus began to explain what his mission would look like, why he came and what him being Messiah, him being the Christ, what that will look like. He's going to teach us how he's going to build this church and how he's going to go and rescue the captives who are enslaved in hell. So back to our passage, verse 21 starts with, from that time, so from when the disciples found out that Jesus, or believed that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So because Jesus was the Messiah, because he was the promised one, the rescuer, he must go to Jerusalem. Because that's where he would suffer and be betrayed and die. As Messiah, Jesus' mission was to build the church in order to storm the gates of hell and rescue the captives out from their slavery to sin and to death. And he would do this through his suffering, betrayal, death, and resurrection. In a parallel passage in the book of Luke, right after this, Luke writes, uh, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. In the NIV it says, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So once his disciples knew why he came and what, what he was going to do, Jesus turned to Jerusalem and decided, this is where I'm going to go. He cast his eyes on Jerusalem because he knew his mission was there. He knew that his mission was the cross and the resurrection and that it would happen in Jerusalem. So some 700 years before Jesus even came, one of the prophets, Isaiah, spoke of this rescuer, spoke of this Messiah, this king who would come to save his people, and he describes how he's going to come and do that. We read in uh, the book of Isaiah 53, and as we're reading this, since we're on this side of the cross, since we know what Jesus' mission was, what he came and what he did, look for Jesus in, in this passage that's, just, that's describing him, especially what he did on the cross. 
starting in verse 5. But he, speaking of, of this Messiah, of Jesus, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So we see here the prophet Isaiah prophesying, and we see what a powerful and beautiful description of what Christ would do, of how Christ would heal, how he would restore, how he would bring forgiveness for our betrayal, how he would give us the spoils of his victory, which came through his anguish, his rejection, his sorrow and grief, his crushing and piercing wounds, being oppressed and being afflicted, crushed and given the punishment of all the evil ever committed. And yet he did this without opening his mouth and without demanding his own justice and demanding his own rights. He loves you that much. He loves you that much. So how do the disciples respond to this? How do they respond to Jesus' teaching about what he will have to now go through as Messiah? Verse 22, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Or other translations use the term, God forbid, or never, Lord. So Peter is essentially saying here, If you are the Christ... Your father just revealed it to me that you are the Messiah. So if you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Rescuer, then there is no way that this will happen to you. There's no way that you're going to go suffer and be betrayed and be killed. So even though Peter just got it a few verses earlier, which we studied last week, he just got from God that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. But Peter still doesn't fully understand. Just like the most of the Jews that day and the rest of the disciples, they had a, a misunderstanding of what the Messiah would be and what he would do. We have some examples up here. So the Jews misunderstood and they thought that the Messiah would come in a physical and immediate reign over Jerusalem, whereas Jesus came and his reign was spiritual at first and then points forward to his physical reign when he finally returns. The Jews misunderstood and thought that the Messiah was going to defeat their physical and real oppressors and their real enemies, which was Rome at the time. 
But Jesus came as the Messiah who would defeat his people's greatest enemies of sin and death and Satan. The Jews thought that the Messiah would be accepted by all the people and exalted. We're going to see that uh, later on when we read about uh, Palm Sunday and see how many of the Jews welcomed him, thinking that he was coming as this Messiah here on the left. But Jesus came as a Messiah who was rejected and executed. And finally, the Jews thought that the Messiah was going to get glory and honor through his political and physical victory. Whereas Jesus received glory and honor through suffering, through betrayal, and through his death. So Jesus then responds to Peter's rebuke with a rebuke of his own. Verse 23, But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Jesus calls Peter a hindrance, saying that he is speaking as Satan, just like Satan, as a tempter, as a deceiver, as someone who is laying a trap for Jesus. This Greek word, uh, hindrance, means, or uh, the Greek word is, is scandalin, which can mean a hindrance, a stumbling block, or a trap. One of the New Testament scholars I was reading thinks that we should, instead of thinking of, of this word necessarily as a hindrance or as a stumbling block, we should think of it as a, as a trap, especially in this passage. Uh, so this scholar, Richard Nesky, writes, Here in Matthew 16, it is important to retain the original meaning. One may fall over a stumbling block and yet may rise again. But this is not the case with Scandalon. For merely to touch the bait affixed to it would spring the trap, and Jesus would be caught in its death grip. So a scandalon, a, a hindrance here, is the trigger in a trap. So in this picture of a mousetrap, we can, we can see that the, or you can't see, but the scandalon would be the piece right underneath the cheese. And so what Peter is offering to Jesus, to skip the cross, to skip the suffering, to become a Messiah without his death is that bait sitting on the cheese, just ready to destroy him. Or maybe uh, an, an even better, more clear example for us in this culture would be this trap that's made uh, to catch a hipster. So, uh, you go to the next slide, John. There you go. So, you know, a hipster might be tempted with, with, these, uh, with a PBR and some American spirits, a bike chain and a, a 9 millimeter camera. So just as the hipster looks at, at these things and is attracted to them and wants to get them despite seeing the danger there. So just, just like that, Jesus is saying that Peter is setting a trap for him, something that's attractive to him, something that he wants as, as Jesus being fully human. And so Peter's setting a trap that leads to him becoming Messiah without the cross becoming a Messiah without the suffering, betrayal, and his death and resurrection. This actually isn't the first time that Satan tempts Jesus with foregoing or skipping the cross. Back in Matthew 4, right, we uh, studied months and months ago, right when Jesus first began his public ministry, the Holy Spirit took him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And he tempted him with, with two things, and Jesus uh, did not give in. And then the third thing, 
uh, Satan tempts Jesus with something similar. We're going to read in uh, Matthew 4. Again, the devil took him, took Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. Because Jesus knew his mission. He knew that he needed to come and suffer and die on our behalf. That's how he was going to be Messiah. Be gone, Satan, he said, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So the reason that, that Peter's rebuke to Jesus, the reason that it is a hindrance, the reason that it is a trap, is because he's thinking, like it says in verse 23, not setting his mind on the things of God, but instead on the things of man. He's setting his eyes and his mind on the things of man with regards to, to being Messiah. Things of comfort and power and riches. He wants a Messiah that comes like that. Whereas the things of God are pain, suffering, persecution, and death. So when you read things like this, it's great for us to stop and think, how often do us as disciples imitate Peter here? How often do we, do we look at and set our minds of things of men instead of things of God? How often do we desire comfort and power and riches over pain, suffering, persecution, and death. I'll come back to that in a little bit. So as, as Jesus continues to teach now, he says that it won't be just the Messiah that suffers, but also those who follow him. They will also suffer and die. Spiritually, and some of them even uh, physically will be martyred and died. Verse 20, uh, 24, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone... Let's stop right there. First of all, Jesus is saying anyone. We can't read over that. He's saying anyone. Anyone can come to him. Anyone can become his disciple, can become his follower. You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to know everything in this book. You don't have, no, you don't have to know uh, all the theology. You don't have to have great works. But anyone is invited by Jesus to become his follower. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So here this word lose that Jesus uses in verse 25 means to utterly destroy or to completely and thoroughly renounce. So Jesus is saying, but whoever destroys or completely renounces his life for my sake, for Jesus' sake, We'll find it. In Luke, we see an even deeper description in a parallel passage. Luke writes, uh, And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So the cost of following Jesus, the cost of being his disciple, is huge. Jesus says you have to deny yourself in order to be his disciple. You have to deny your comfort you have to deny your rights, which is really hard for us as Americans to deny our own rights for the sake of Jesus and his gospel. We have to deny our own agendas. We have to say, I'm going to give up what I feel really passionate about or what I really want to put my, my energy 
and time into, but I'm going to look to Christ and what he says, and that's going to be what I'm passionate about. The cost of following Christ, he also says we have to die to ourselves. We have to die to our sinful nature. We have to die to our selfishness, die to our pride, die to our self-preservation. Pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who in his book, uh, talking about what it costs people to follow Christ, writes his famous quote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, we must take up his cross. So this phrase, taking up your cross, refers to uh, Roman crucifixion, which was the, the way of torturing and executing people to be nailed to a cross until they died. And so this phrase that Jesus is using, taking up your cross, is a prelude to your crucifixion, a prelude to your execution. So in today's language, uh, it might be something like, if anyone wants to be Jesus' follower, you must put on the hood, kneel down, and place your neck on the execution block and follow him. That image, probably very disturbing, especially if we really think about what that means. Horrifying, offensive, scary, costly. And that's the point. Jesus is not saying, if anyone would be my follower, let him come to church for an hour and a half once a week. That's it. He's not saying, just go to community group or just give a little bit of your money or a little bit of your time and your energy. But he says, if anyone would be my follower, he must take up his cross. He must die to his old self, his old sinful self, and follow him. In Romans 6, the Apostle Paul writes about how our baptisms mirror and reflect this reality of the old self, the old sinful flesh dying and being raised with a new life in Christ. In Romans 6, he writes about our death to our old self and the new life we receive in Christ. Starting in verse uh, 3 of chapter 6, Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the, glorious of, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So when you see a baptism, we're seeing this amazing picture of a true reality that's, that's happened in that person. When we bring someone down under the water, it's symbolic 
of, of Jesus dying, symbolic of that, old, that person's old self dying, of that person taking up their cross. It's, it's symbolic of the old sinful nature dying, the old Spencer dying and being no more. And then when it's raised up, it mirrors Jesus being raised from the dead and us being raised as a new creation, a new person, new life in Christ. So I'd encourage you, if and when you see the next baptism, be thinking about, be thinking about that. See in that imagery what's happened to you spiritually and what's happening to that person, or what has happened to that person. We're going to have more baptisms at our church. Uh, we're planning to have some uh, either this spring or for sure in the summer. So if you've never been baptized and, and you are a follower of Jesus, I'd strongly consider you to, be, to pray about it, to study scripture about what baptism is. If you have more questions, come and talk to Chris and I. We'd love to talk to you about it. And, and do and be a part of a public declaration in front of, in front of the church, in front of uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ, in front of the world, showing in a picture what God has done spiritually in your life. Paul, in another one of his books, also describes this death to our old self and our new life that we receive in Christ in the book of uh, 2 Corinthians. He writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Our new creation, our new life, is a gift from God through what Christ did on our behalf on the cross. Through what Christ did, we're now brought back into relationship with our God. The rescuer has come, and we're no longer separated and banished from our creator and our God anymore. Back to Matthew. Jesus continues this call to his disciples. Verse 26, But what will it profit a man, or what, ad- what advantage would a man have if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So let's stop right there and consider that. As I was studying for this, I thought of uh, the story of, of Pinocchio. And I thought of how uh, Pinocchio is, is tempted uh, to go to this place. I, I believe it's called like Pleasure Land, something like that. And he goes there, and he's able to do whatever he wants. He's able to drink and smoke and gamble and have all this mischief and all this fun that he wants. But it comes at the cost of selling his soul. And, he, and a bunch of his friends start to become donkeys. And he actually does narrowly escape. But this reminded me of that same picture of how foolish is it to gain this whole world, but still forfeit your soul. And he says, gain the whole world. He doesn't just say, have a really successful life, or have a lot of riches, or do really well in this life. But he says, even someone who gains the entire world, but still loses his soul, forfeits his soul, is lost. So this life that we live is just, just a blink, just a vapor, in compared to eternity. So Jesus is telling his disciples, consider what your soul is worth. Consider what your eternal life is worth because, going into verse 27, because the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Have they put their faith in Christ? Are they living for themselves? 
Are they making themselves their own God throughout this life? Verse 28, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We'll get a chance to see that, that description in verse 28 next week when we study the transfiguration. And we'll see it even more clear uh, when we see the death and, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus later on in Matthew. So Jesus is teaching us and teaching his disciples that to follow him will cost you everything. It will cost you everything, but it's worth it. Back in that uh, Romans 6 passage, we will receive eternal life. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we will be raised in physical bodies to live with him for eternity. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, writes, The kingdom of heaven is worth infinitely more than the cost of discipleship. The kingdom of heaven is worth infinitely more than what it costs to be a disciple. And those who know where their treasure lies joyfully abandon everything else in order to secure it. So in conclusion, the first thing we need to do as we, as we read this passage, as we study this passage, listen to Jesus' hard teaching about what it costs to be his disciples. We need to realize and remember what it cost Jesus. And to remember that he chose, he chose to do this because of his love for you. Realize and remember that God chose to endure pain, rejection, suffering, loss, torture, Death and hell, just to give you new life. His love is unimaginable for you. And remember that as you look back towards the cross. And from that, from that realization of what he's done, from that remembrance of the cross, of the gospel, we can move on to, to number two, to daily die to ourselves, to, to daily die to our old sinful nature, to deny our agendas, our rights, our opinions for the sake of the gospel. And finally, number three, if you are a believer, if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, you put your faith in what he's done in order to rescue you and bring you back to God, bring you back to your creator. If you are a Christian, live as though you are a new creation. As we read in uh, Romans 6, Paul ends with, so you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. Because that's true about you. Remember that and live as though it's true. Don't live as though the old sinful nature is still alive. A slave to sin, as we read about it. But live as though you have been raised with Christ. You're a new creation. His spirit is living in you. And you are no longer a slave to sin. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Jesus, because it's true. Remind each other of that. Remind your family members of that. Remind your friends. Remind the people in your community group, the people that you talk with here at Sunday, at our gatherings, the people that God's put in your life, in your neighborhood, and at work. And if this isn't you, if you're still wondering who this Jesus is, why he came, what he was all about, he tells you very plainly today. He came in his mission was to seek and save the lost. His mission was to build the church 
that would storm these defensive gates of hell and rescue dead slaves out of it. And he wants to give you a new life. So today you can, you can trust in Jesus. You can put your faith in him and receive a new life through him. A, life, a new life here, physical life now, as well as, as well as an eternal life with him. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a rescuer, God, that you are patient with us, that you are kind with us. And when we rebelled against you, you did not turn your back on us, but you immediately had grace to humanity. You immediately were merciful, and you promised that this would not be the case forever, that you would, uh, we would not be separated from you for forever. Death would not be the last answer but that you would send a Messiah, you would send a rescuer, a king who would come and defeat our enemies on our behalf and give us the spoils of your victory. Someone that would rescue us from being slaves to sin and being captives in hell and bring us back into relationship with you. Help us to weigh the cost and to know that being your disciple does cost us everything. We must die to our selfishness and to our old, old sinful nature, but that it's worth it. We can gain life. We can gain eternal life with you. So Holy Spirit, make, make those truths real to us. May everyone in this room who is a follower of you live as though they are a new creation, that they would die to their own sinful nature daily, that they would take up their cross joyfully, if there are people here this morning that don't know you yet, that are still deciding whether or not it's worth it to follow you, we pray that you would change their hearts, that you would show them how great the life that you offer is in comparison to what uh, our old sinful nature wants. pray this all in your name. Amen.